I'm thrilled this morning to introduce us to our new series in the Minor Prophets. Uh, I'll, if you're honest, you're probably going to admit that you haven't been spending a lot of time in the Minor Prophets lately. Maybe you have. Um, perhaps you've avoided these books, thinking they're insignificant because of the word minor there. Uh, the word minor there refers to their length, right, not their significance. So in that respect, many of you like minor books or minor sermons. So you should enjoy this series on the Minor Prophets. The other reason we want to give you a series of minor prophets is because one day you're going to run into Obadiah on the golden roads of heaven, and he's going to ask you, hey, how'd you like my book? And uh, we want to save you that awkwardness. So we begin our series this week in the minor prophets with Hosea, specifically Hosea chapter 3. So you can, if you're not already there, turn to Hosea chapter 3. James Montgomery Boyce called Hosea chapter 3 the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. That's provocative. Uh, for my money, i would probably say Matthew 28 with both the resurrection and the Great Commission has, has the cards there. But uh, Hosea chapter 3 is certainly in my top three. And I think Boyce has ground to stand on there because Hosea is an incredible passage. It's incredible for a variety of reasons. One reason is that it really summarizes the message of the 12 prophets that we're going to continue to pull on that thread as we go through this series. And it's the message that God cares. God cares. God cares about the nations. He cares about the world. He cares about the world's idolatry, the world's sexual sin. He cares even about the child sacrifice that's happening among the nations surrounding them. His eye is on even his enemies. He is not turning a blind eye. He is not ignoring injustices that are happening in the world around his people. God cares about justice. He cares about personal justice. He cares about social justice. He even cares about cosmic justice. When it comes to justice, God cares about it all. That is the message of the prophets. These prophets are going to remind us that from genocide in China to brutality in Minnesota, God's eye is not turned away. God sees and God cares. These glimpses of God's passion for the idolatry of the nations, they're going to well up. Certain prophets are going to even focus in on the nations. But more often than not, this message that God cares is not focused on the outside world. All right, so the prophets sometimes are, but most of the time they're not looking around at the secular world to point out all of the world's flaws. God's going to give them words specifically to his people. You see, it's easy for, for prophets to look outside of their own culture, of their own bubble, and see the problems outside. It's a little bit more of a difficult task for prophets to look inside, to look at those who are their friends, family members, even their own hearts, and allow God to speak in his word to them. So throughout these prophets, the cries are going to ring out, return to me. God's going to call out their apathy to social injustice. He's going to call out their empty religious rituals. They're going through the motions of religiosity. And in doing so, he's going to pour out his contempt very explicitly on these two pillars of apathy to injustice and empty religious rituals. You see, my friends, God is not blind to the idolatry of the pagans, but he cares even more about his people's subtle idolatry. And in each of these books, we're going to see that he cares so much that he gives us a promise, a promise of a planned restoration for his people through a coming Messiah. God cares enough that he will not leave his people be, but instead he will send a Messiah to deliver them, to bring the justice that they look around and fail to see. So while other prophets get sermons, visions, they even veer off into screeds at times, Hosea gets something a little different. Hosea gets a living parable. So Hosea graduates seminary, 
and all of his fellow laborers are getting their ministry assignments. And Hosea, as prophets are prone to do, hears a word from the Lord, and his divinely inspired summons is this. It is not go and find the largest church or the first Baptist church or the cushy ministry assignment. It's not even to go into a nation that's going to be difficult where you'll be a church planter. No, Hosea's summons to ministry is this. Go and marry a prostitute. I'll admit this is not the job that I was applying for as I graduated seminary. And as far as I know, none of my uh, fellow graduates apply for that one either. And yet this is the ministry assignment that Hosea gets. Go and marry a prostitute. What ensues in Hosea can be summarized in three acts that you have on your sheet there. First, the pursuit. Second, the scandal. And third, the price. The pursuit, the scandal, and the price. Let's begin with the pursuit. In the pursuit, we see that God's love is like a husband. You see it right there in the first part of verse 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. You see, Hosea 3.1 tells us that God's love is spousal. The kind of love that he has for his people is not simply my love for cookies and cake, which is a pretty deep love, right? Instead, it's a love that goes even deeper and more passionate than that. It is a love that a spouse has for the other. It's the kind of passionate intensity that a spouse has, that a husband has for his bride and that a bride has for her husband. He's gonna, he has already mentioned this in the chapter above, in chapter 2, verse 19. He said, I will betroth you to me forever. This is God speaking to Israel. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. This word betroth is astounding. I will give you to myself, right? I will ask you to marry me. We will be engaged. You see, in our deepest thoughts about God, in our most generous views of God, right? And on our best days of our image of God, we might venture to think that he would accept us, that he would tolerate us. Maybe, if you have really high self-esteem, you might even think that God likes you a little bit, that he's maybe a little fond of you on your good days. And yet the Bible, Hosea, goes way past that line. He says, no, it's not that kind of love. It's not the love of toleration. It's the love of marriage. My friends, no human relationship can fully encapsulate God, right? You can't summarize God's relationship to us in any one relationship. And so the Bible gives us a lot. So if you want to know God's protection, Psalm 23 tells us, look at a shepherd. If you want to know God's rule, Psalm 47 tells us, look at a king. Psalm 103 tells us, if you want to look at God's compassion, look at a father. Psalm 7 tells us, if you want to look at God's justice, look at a judge. But Hosea incredibly tells us, if you want to see God's love, look at a marriage. See, God's love is not encapsulated in the love of a judge or a shepherd or even a a father, but in the love of a spouse. You see, a shepherd might have some sheep that he doesn't entirely despise, right? The ones that typically stay in line, the ones that don't really run away that often. He might have some sheep that he doesn't roll his eyes at very often. And a king might have some subjects that he even uh, enjoys their company, that he might could use for their skills, and so they, he allows them to be a part of his court because he either finds them funny, clever, or useful. But a husband's relationship to a wife is something different. A husband's love is different because it's deliberate. That's the first reason a husband's love is different than these other kinds of love. It's deliberate. When 
uh, Caitlin and I were doing our premarital counseling, we had the great privilege of, um, of sitting under the wisdom of Cliff and Tom and Knight, whom I don't think any of you know, um, but they were uh, somewhat famous at, uh, at Lakeview Baptist Church for their premarital counseling sessions and giving you a little more information than maybe you kind of wanted in those premarital counseling sessions. But the most awkward part, the most tense part of, of those counseling sessions for us was not in Cliff's discussions of Song of Solomon, but it was instead as we were together and um, it was a, a one-on-one session and Cliff looked at Caitlin out of the blue. We were talking through these questions and we hadn't prepared for this one. He looked up and he asked her, what will you do if he cheats on you? And I'm sitting there and I, I, get about, I feel like I'm about six inches tall as my future bride begins to choke back tears as she describes how she would hope she could forgive me, but it would take years of repentance and working through things and mutual labor in that respect. And I'm over here as she gets about five minutes in, like, hold on, can we just clarify? I didn't, right? I haven't. Um, this has been a little too real here. And you might think, man, that's a little um, uncomfortable, and it was. And you might think, that's a little cruel to ask a newlywed couple that kind of question. But I think there was wisdom there. Because in a season when most couples are only thinking about what kind of cake they're going to eat, what color the flowers are going to be, these are good and happy times. But Cliff was moving our eyes to something a little deeper. Cliff was moving our eyes that, to the fact that um, our love wouldn't just be all roses and cake, right? And even if that worst-case scenario didn't happen, that we would go through some things. And that before we set out on this journey together, we needed to think through that worst-case scenario so that our love could be deliberate, so that it wouldn't just be superficial for the good times, but that it would be ready to endure even though it was difficult of times. And as uncomfortable as that is, for Hosea, this is no hypothetical. I don't know if you caught it, but he said, Go and love a a woman who is loved by another man and is unadulterous. I love this and hate this at the same time. God says, Go and love a prostitute, and she will cheat on you, and she will leave, and you're going to go get her. Hosea knew exactly what he was getting into. This was not a surprise to it. He didn't wake up one morning and go, oh my goodness, God, I didn't know that. No, before he even sought her out, he knew it was coming. And because Hosea's love mirrors God's love, this morning you can know, my friend, that God is not shocked by your failures. God did not wake up this morning and look down in horror and shock at what you've gotten yourself into. He is holy and he grieves for your sin. And if you do not turn away from your sin, you will have to face him. But he knew exactly what he was getting into when he created you. His love is not a whim or a flight of fancy, but it is a deliberate love. He knew that you would have anger issues. He knew that you would forget to pray. He knew that you would have that issue with food. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As a matter of fact, Ephesians tells us that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to present us as holy and blameless before him. He didn't choose us because we were holy and blameless. He chose us in order to make us holy and blameless. John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, they asked Jesus once, why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? We're going hungry two or three days a week here, and your disciples are just always eating. They're eating with sinners, they're eating with Pharisees, they're eating with everybody. How come they get to eat? Do you remember what Jesus told them? 
He said, oh, they'll fast. But right now is the wedding party. Right now is the rehearsal dinner. You don't come to a rehearsal dinner and tell everybody you're fasting. You come to the rehearsal dinner to celebrate and eat. Jesus said, the groom is here. Do you hear what Jesus is doing there? Jesus is saying, yeah, that guy Hosea was talking about, that groom, he's here. Jesus is claiming to be the new and better Hosea. And my friend, your groom knew your past, your present, and your future failure. He knew the parts of yourself that you hate. He knew the countless ways that you would spurn his love. And he came for you anyway. He showed up to the wedding. Perhaps even today you sense his pursuit. You hear his call to come home. His love is deliberate, but it's not just deliberate. A husband's love is not simply that. A husband's love is also passionate. You see, a king or judge has to hold his subjects at arm's length, right? That's the nature of the relationship. You can't let someone get too close to you. A judge has to keep objectivity. He has to be impartial. A king has to rule. There has to be a certain level at which no one else, even the queen, cannot go up to in order for him to remain king and authority. But the relationship between a husband and wife is not like this. It requires intimacy. Spousal love requires nearness. And many of you have, have grown up thinking of yourself as, as tedious or at the very best unknown to the heart of God. Many of you have grown up thinking of God as king and God as shepherd and God as judge. And these are all biblical and good images. But in the absence of the image Hosea is giving us here, they are insufficient. Because as much as you are like a sheep who goes astray, and as much as you are like a subject of a kingdom, you are not simply that in the heart of God. Verse 1 is an explosion to this idea of God. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. I want to show Israel what my relationship to her is like, Hosea. So go and find a wife. To those who are here and are wounded, perhaps your parents had a sterile and broken marriage. Perhaps even your own marriage is full of conflict and strife. And you say, well, that image doesn't really give me a whole lot of intimacy. I don't really know what Hosea is going for there. Well, the Bible knows that. God knows that. And so he gives us the book of Song of Solomon. If you've ever read Song of Solomon, you cannot miss this analogy because the Song of Solomon is anything but sterile, right? Song of Solomon is anything but tedious. Anybody who's been in a youth group and had a youth pastor who ignorantly and naively thought he was going to preach on Song of Solomon knows this, right? It is not sterile or tedious. I'll give you one example in Song of Solomon chapter 8, verse 6. So Song of Solomon, if you don't know, is a, a real love story between Solomon and the Shulamite woman. And it alludes constantly to the fact how it is pointing us to God's love for us. And the Shulamite woman pleads with her lover in, uh, in Song of Solomon 8, 6, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of of the Lord. My friends, this is not a tame or subdued love that the Shulamite woman has for her husband. Neither is God's love for us tame or subdued. And yet, it doesn't take a very discerning reader to see pretty quickly that Hosea is not a self-help marriage book. Hosea is not simply a how-to of marriage. As a matter of fact, for those, we have a few engaged couples here who I'm doing some premarital counseling with. I just want to give the disclaimer right off the bat. This is not a good marriage. Okay? This is not what you should strive for. 
If you look at the rest of verse 1, you've already heard me say it. It's not just go and love a woman. Go and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. My friends, God is in pursuit, and yet the scandal is that your love, I mean, I'm sorry, your sin is like adultery. If God's love is like a marriage, then your sin is like adultery. Gomer has been redeemed from the miserable life of a prostitute only to go back into the arms of those men who had violated and used her. While she's been welcomed into a home and given everything she needs, tender, caring, love, and provision, she constantly runs back into the lifestyle that she was redeemed out of. And how like sin this is for us. You see, if God is a shepherd, then sin is wandering or getting lost. And if God is a judge, then sin is breaking the moral code. And if God is a father, then sin is full of disappointment and shame and letting him down. And sin is all of these things according to Scripture, but it's more than that. You see, God as lover brings a different weight to sin. God as lover means that God, I'm sorry, God as lover means that sin is betrayal. It's not simply disappointment or shame or breaking the law. It is a betrayal of our groom. As I've counseled people who have gone through this themselves, you often hear this, right? That you hear there's anger, right? I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I wish this didn't happen and I want to I hit a wall. But even more than that, even more than anger, the primary emotion I feel is, is sadness. As angry as I am, I'm not nearly as angry as I am sad. I spend much more time weeping than I do punching. And what a great motivation we have here for sanctification. And Ephesians tells us, do not grieve the Spirit of God. My friends, sin is not simply breaking God's law, it's breaking God's heart. Sin is not simply letting your father down. Sin is turning your back upon your lover and embracing another. If we need any motivation to flee temptation, we have it in the book of Hosea. Flee sin and come back into the arms of the one whom your soul loves. Because if our sin is a betrayal of God, then our pursuit of other lovers is simply idolatry. You can see this in the strange names that he gives to his children in chapter 2, verse 23. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. He shall say, you are my God. And in verse 22, he says, they shall answer Jezreel. So these are all the names of his no mercy. Not my people. I hate to be in elementary school and have to write that at the top of your paper every assignment you're given, right? So you can hear, I think, the echo of the consequence of idolatry and no mercy and not my people. It's a little bit harder to hear for Jezreel. What is, what is Jezreel? Why is that significant? And for that, you have to go back to 2 Kings 9 through 10. To 2 Kings 9 through 10. And we won't read the whole story there, um, but essentially the summary is that Jezreel points us specifically to one idolatry, and it would have immediately triggered in Israel's mind one idolatry above the others that they have faced and that God's people still face, and that is the idolatry and allure of pragmatic power. The idolatry and the allure of pragmatic power. So in 2 Kings 9-10, through King Ahab steals the valley of Jezreel from a man named Naboth, and he takes it, he slaughters him, and God says, well, that's not right, and so he sends a man named Jehu, to take it back from King Ahab. Jehu does, violently slaughters Ahab's family in order to take the valley of Jezreel back, and he ascends the throne. And instead of faithfully demolishing the Baals, 
instead of faithfully giving credit to the Lord, he immediately turns to Baal worship himself. Instead of pursuing faithfulness, there is simply violence and bloodshed upon violence and bloodshed, all for the sake of more idolatry. While Jehu had obeyed God outwardly, he had done what God had told him to do in taking the valley of Jezreel back. He had obeyed him outwardly, but he was in it for his own glory. And in turn, Jezreel becomes a byword for bloodshed. So in the same way that Watergate is a byword for us for scandal, the same way that Hiroshima is a byword for devastation in Israel, Jezreel has become a colloquialism, a byword for bloodshed. Specifically, though, bloodshed rooted in pragmatic, self-interested, self-glorifying power. And this allusion in Hosea makes more sense as you turn to chapter 8, so you can turn there with me. It's just a few pages over. Chapter 8, verses 8 through 10 Hosea is calling out Israel for their sin. And Hosea says, Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations a useless vessel. Now look at verse 9. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired his lovers. So if you know your history, you know that the Babylonians are encroaching here in the book of Hosea, and during Hosea's time upon Israel. And, Hosea, and the Israelites are scared. They're looking around and say, who are we going to have to protect us from our enemies? They are doubting God's sufficiency in these turbulent times, and they're wondering what they're going to do, and so what do they do? Well, they look to the closest strongman. They say, well, I mean, I'm, God's got our back, but surely he would want us to have a backup plan. So they turn to Assyria, and they ask for Assyria's help, and help Assyria would. And yet, within just a few years, it would be Assyria themselves who took Israel. Assyria provide temporary protection, but at the cost of their well-being. You see, Israel did not need, Hosea is telling them, and they would find out for themselves, that Israel did not need another strong man. Israel needed to live faithfully to her God. Their problem, of course, is not that they're engaged in world affairs. Right? God had called them to be a light to the nations. God had called them to show the nations what the kingdom of God looked like. Their problem is not that they're talking to Assyria or that Assyria knows who they are. Their problem is that they've moved from being a light to the nations. They've moved from a missional focus outward to the nations. And instead, they're grasping at temporary self-preservation and dependence on alliances with strong men. Rather than a hunger to show the nations how faithful their God was, To move outward, they move inward. And they say, we've got to do something to preserve what God's done here. We might lose it. So we need to find someone strong. Assyria will protect us. The image of adultery is apt because a confident and faithful husband does not begrudge his wife from moving in the world and having friends. But both the husband and the wife know the difference between friendship and flirtation. And yet, this morning, I wonder if we do. I wonder if we know the difference between friendship and flirtation with the world, specifically partisan politics. We like to think that when it comes to politics, we are objective, right? And yet if we ask our friends and our family, they might tell a different story. And so to help us diagnose ourselves, I've given, a, I've given you five diagnostic questions for partisan idolatry on your sheet there. So let's, let's go through them together. Number one, Do you feel more at ease around lost people of your political tribe than you do around Jesus followers of a different political tribe? That is, if you are a Republican, 
Who do you have more in common with? The lost Republicans in the room or the redeemed Democrats in the room? And vice versa. If you're a Democrat, who do you have more in common with? Who do you share more with? The lost Democrats in the room or the redeemed Republicans in the room? And the question ultimately gets to, what does, it show that, what does that show you about your foundations, right? If you're more at ease with people who are not redeemed and yet share your politics, that shows that there's a foundation there that goes deeper than what you have in common with Christ. It's a question for us to look at. Number two, do you defend or ignore things in one candidate or party that you would abhor and critique in another? Do you look at one candidate's character and nitpick every aspect, and then you look at another candidate's character and you're quick to excuse their flaws? When it comes to the dignity and value of human life, are you quick to rightly call out abortion, and yet when the discussion of racism comes up, all of a sudden we get really quiet, or vice versa? When it comes to human life, are you very quickly to condemn racism and its effects structurally, but very silent when it comes to abortion and its effects structurally? Do you care about social justice for one tribe, but no social justice for the other tribe? Number three, do you spend more time watching news media or checking Facebook than in God's Word or with His people? And brothers and sisters, this is a discipleship issue for our church. This is a discipleship issue for the American church. You see, we become what we behold. We become what we behold. And as I sit across the table with a brother in Christ, there is a mutual encouragement, edification, sanctification, as with our Bibles open, we come to God's Word together, and He teaches me and I teach Him. He sharpens me and I sharpen Him. And yet, my friends, you are not sharpening Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow. They are influencing you, but you are not influencing them. It is a one-way discipleship, and it is not grounded in the Word of God. Be an informed citizen. Know what's going on in the world. But if you are spending more time on your Facebook feed or in your cable news, you are being discipled in ways that if you only spend an hour a week in church, God's Word will not overcome, apart from a miracle. These are the regular means of grace that God has given us, God's people and His Word. And if you're spending more time in these other areas, that is a heart check for you and for me. I'll just be straightforward with you. All right? So it is easy for me. I'm not a big cable news guy, but I am a scroller, right? I've got my certain outlets that I'm following on Twitter. I've got my articles that I'm reading every day. And the question that I have to ask myself is, who have I talked to that's actually in my circle this week? How much time did I spend this morning in God's Word, or did I skim the passage so that I could check Twitter? This is the question we have to ask ourselves if we're going to check our own hearts. Number four, can you remember the last time you disagreed with your favorite politician in order to agree with Jesus? My friends, Jesus fit in not with the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Romans. They all had their camps and they all argued amongst themselves, but they had one thing in common. They did not like Jesus. And so the Pharisees would come and ask him a question and seek to pit him against the Sadducees. And what did Jesus do? I side with the Sadducees on this one. No. He gave an answer in which it caused them to start arguing with each other. So what do you think about the resurrection? Jesus tells them. And what does he do? He steps back and they start going at each other's throats because what he just said ticked both of them off. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time your favorite politician said something and you said, you know, I read my Bible and I'm not seeing that. I mean, I might have voted for the guy, but 
That's not what I believe. I, mean, I, need to, I need to say something about that. Somebody comes up to me and says, hey, did you hear what so-and-so said? Do you say, oh, well, I, mean, I voted for him, so I guess I probably shouldn't say it. Or do you say, yeah, I heard that. I read this verse that doesn't seem to square with that. Or do you shrink back because Assyria is here and Assyria is helping? Jesus did not fit tongue and groove with any other did not fit in tongue and groove with any earthly faction. And if you do, it may be time to reevaluate where your foundations are. Number five, do the hopes you speak of and the fears you wrestle with reflect a greater concern for the next four years or for eternity? Does what come out, comes out of your mouth in terms of your hopes and dreams and vision for your neighbor, for your family, for the world, reflect the next four years? Or does it reflect their eternity? As you close your eyes to go to sleep at night, Is your mind turning for your neighbor's salvation? Is your mind turning for whether or not your family is growing and trusting the Lord? Or does your mind turn worrying about the next election and its consequences and its results? Dear friend, cast your wayward eye away from your favorite strong man and return to your one true husband. He will use the Assyrians, but they will only use you. So a first idolatry that Hosea hits on is a political idolatry. A second idolatry that Hosea identifies in Israel is the idolatry of consumerism. He says in chapter 13, verse 6, When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud and they forgot me. It's as though God's bride has woken up in the morning and seen a beautiful pair of earrings on her bedside table, brand new. She's never seen them before. And instead of awaking her husband to say thank you, she closes them up, shoves them in the drawer, and thinks, Oh, no. My lover from across the street has snuck in and put them on my bedside table. I've got to hide them from my husband. Her husband has sought to give her good gifts. And rather than giving him the glory and adoration that he is due for those good gifts, she's crediting the Baals. But it was not Baal who was providing these things to Israel. Hosea picks apart this lie in chapter 2. You can see this in verses 5 through 8 of Hosea 2. He says, Their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Verse 7, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. So these words here, bread and water, flax, oil and drink, these are all references God's making a pun. He's being sarcastic, talking about the fertility cult of Baal. So the cult of Baal, they assumed that Baal impregnated the land, that it was he who gave fertility to the land, and so they would reenact this impregnation in their cult temples. And so when God's talking about, I will give her her bread and her water, right? this is the bread and the water that will bring the grain, that will feed the people. I will give her her wool, that is, the sheep that are eating from the ground that has been fertilized. My flax, my oil, my drink, right? these are... Oil from olives, drinks from grapes that has come from the land that it's not Baal who is given, but it's God. You see, they thought that worshiping the Baal would ensure these things, and yet it is actually their God who, despite her unfaithfulness, is continuing to provide for his people. And rather than seeing this and returning to their lover, they credit the affair. Even in the raisin cakes, you heard me read in verse, um, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. 
he talks about raisin cakes, and you're like, what? Raisin cakes? Where, where's that coming from? Well, even raisin cakes were likely used in the fertility cult, right? Raisins are from grapes. Assuming that the grapes have come from the land, this would have been something that they would have eaten in this temple. And yet it's supposed to sound kind of funny to your ear. It's supposed to sound superficial and trivial and random. Because in reality, Israel's adultery is superficial and trivial and random. It doesn't make sense. But you notice that the people's problem here isn't that they are irreligious. The people's problem is not even that they've stopped going to the temple. For in chapter 8, verse 13, God talks about them coming to the temple and offering false worship. They haven't even publicly yet abandoned the Lord. Their problem was not that they, um, was not that they were irreligious, but, but that they did not... I'm sorry, let me start that one over. Their problem was not that they were irreligious, but, th- but that they didn't expect connections between their theology and their everyday lives. That is to say that their faith was sentimental, but it wasn't practical. They were not expecting their beliefs about God to transform their lives in any meaningful way. So the diagnostic question for consumerism is twofold. But both questions are really asking the same question, which is, to what do you run? To what do you run? When things go well for you, who gets the credit? Is it your hard work, your charisma, the economy, the American dream, or is it your good God? When things go poorly for you, what do you look to for comfort? Do you look to the power of your own intellect? Okay, I can figure this out. I'll figure it out. I'll find the solution. Do you look to your 401k? Well, at least that's still there. Do you look to the buy it now button on Amazon to give you comfort, something new, something unexpected arriving at your door? Or has the love of God compelled you to reconfigure how you spend your money, how you talk to your wife, how you advocate for the vulnerable, and how you reach out to your neighbor? Or are you too busy chasing for raising cakes? So our sin is idolatry, our sin is consumerism, it's, po- it's politics, but it's also, very quickly, it's in our fleeing. Your sin, my friend, is possibly not only in your failure, but in your response to your failure. So Gomer's sin was certainly that she was cheating on her husband. Right? Gomer's sin was certainly in her adultery. But perhaps even the greater sin, perhaps even the greater betrayal was that after she committed adultery, rather than coming back to her husband and saying, look, I've, I've done this, it was, it's part of my old life, I'm trying to do, make new habits, and yet I confess to you, I've done it again. What does she do? She runs away. Rather than coming to her groom to work out the issues, she flees back into the arms of her lovers for comfort. You see, most of, most of us think of our sin as failure, maybe even our sin as rebellion. But is it possible that your greater sin, like Adam and Eve hiding in the garden from God, is not in your failure, but in your response to your failure? Perhaps it's not in your failure, but it's in your fleeing. To what do you run when you've sinned? Do you run back to your idols, or do you run to your God, who is gracious and loving and steadfast? So God promises to allure them back into the wilderness. He promises to bring them back into the wilderness. You can hear echoes of Exodus, right? You know that in the wilderness, the Israelites were freed from slavery, and yet they called back out to their former lovers in Egypt. In the wilderness, God would show them his faithfulness by providing direction through a pillar of fire, sustenance by manna, healing through a bronze snake. And even as they left the wilderness, they go to take the promised land, And do you remember what happens? They go into the Valley of Achor, which Hosea mentions here. 
in chapter 2. He says, actually, Hosea does, There I will give her the vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. He promises to turn the valley of Achor into a door of hope. In other words, he's promising that the judgment due is going to be the grace given. Because in the valley of Achor, as they went to take the promised land, God told them, don't take any of the stuff. Leave the stuff or take in the land. We don't want any of this pag- these pagan stuff. That's not the point. Achor says, yeah, okay, sure, whatever. Starts to hoard some silver. God finds out, tells Moses, and Achan's judgment, of course, is that his, he and his family are, are slaughtered. And so they renamed it the Valley of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble. You can see the footnote in your Bible there. So this place, this other place, has become known for its trouble, known for its bloodshed. God says, I'm going to turn this place, take the Valley of Trouble, and turn it into a door of hope. And so, in the wilderness, in the Valley of Trouble, we enter the third act, which is the price. God tells us that the cost of his love is evisceration. I'm sorry for the $2 word there. It's the best word I had, but evisceration simply means gutted or split into. The cost of God's love is evisceration. Tim Keller has said that all love requires substitutional sacrifice. I think he's right. All right. So we all have that friend, right, who when they call and you see their number on your caller ID, you immediately think, okay, do I want to answer? Because you know if you don't answer, you're going to leave them to wallow in their self-pity because they have some stuff to unload on you. And if you don't answer, you're going to have a great night watching Netflix, enjoying some relaxation, but leaving them to wallow. Or if you answer, you're going to make their night much better because they're going to get to unload, and yet your night is not going to be relaxing. Instead, you're going to take on a lot of their grief, a lot of their wallowing, a lot of their self-pity, right? We all have that friend. If you don't have that friend, just a fair warning, you might be that friend, okay? So there's some self-reflection for you. But it's true, isn't it, that to love always has a cost. To love truly always has a cost. So I want you to imagine with me. Would you imagine Hosea? So his wife is gone again. He's woken up. She's no longer in his bed. And the Lord comes to him and says, go get her. So Hosea goes and tracks her down and spends a journey going to these filthy places, going into these brothels and these places in which no man of his stature should be even close. No man of God should be getting close to, right? He goes and he looks and he looks and finally he comes upon the slave traders. And he looks up and he sees his bride. And likely because she is being sold as a slave, she would have been stripped naked so that those people who were buying her would know exactly what it is that they were getting. And the auctioneer starts the bidding at 10 pieces of silver. He says, would anybody pay 10 pieces of silver and Gomer hears the voice of her wounded husband say, Ten. And a man next to Hosea with as many teeth as he has IQ points says, Twelve. Hosea looks over and he starts to think about his savings account, what's in there, and he says, Fifteen. And another man in the crowd says, I can do sixteen. Hosea begins to think, 15 is all I have. So he thinks about what's in his pantry. Thinks about what he can liquidate. So he says, I can do 15 and a homer of barley. The bidding continues, and finally they settle on a price, and the other men look at Hosea, and they look at Gomer, and they're like, a 15 and a homer and a lethage of barley. 
Okay, then they decide they can go find a better deal elsewhere. Someone younger, someone better looking. So Hosea is left with his wife. And he goes and he grabs her hand and leads her down from the block. And rather than saying, you're going to work for this, you're going to pay me back. Or even saying, I owe that to you as the mother of my children. But I never want to see you again. Instead, he does what? He brings her home. And he says, I will allure you into the wilderness. I will win back your love. I will have your affection. This is not an insignificant sacrifice for Hosea. He is eviscerated financially. He is eviscerated emotionally, but this is nothing in comparison to the sacrifice of Jesus. You see in Hosea chapter 3, verse 5, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king. David is dead. What is he talking about? We know what he's talking about. David their king is coming, the true and better bridegroom. And the price that he would pay would be more than silver and barley. He would go outside the camp into the wilderness to allure his bride. And 1 Peter 1, 18 tells us, He knew that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his bride. No matter what you're caught up in today, whether you're a sexual sinner like Gomer, whether you're a political idolater like Israel, Jesus came came to pay the price to take you home. Perhaps you've never followed Jesus because to you it's always been about rules and it's always been about what you were supposed to do and you weren't about that game. And today you hear the call of your lover to follow him, not because of the rules, but because of his heart. Perhaps you're a believer and the question that's before you is, do you actually treasure him above all else? Or do you come to worship on Sunday and then go back to your bales on Monday? Perhaps God is calling you to a season off of social media or cable news. Perhaps He's weaning you from an overdependence on the retirement account or the stock portfolio. What household gods is the Spirit reaching for in your life today? But my friends, no matter how you are fleeing, you can know this. That Jesus takes Gomers and He makes them Hosea's. Jesus takes fleeing and fickle gomers and he turns them into sacrificial and faithful and tender Hoseas. And so to the parent praying for a child who has left their faith, to the minority reliving trauma as you're forced to constantly see your humanity minimized over and over and over again, to the family who is grieving a loss of life and a loss of justice and on some days even a loss of joy. Hosea speaks a word. Hear him. He tells you that God went and goes again and again and again for you. I can't promise your Gomer will return. I, can't, I don't know if Hosea's Gomer actually stayed. But what I can promise you is that your Gomer is making you more like Jesus. May Grace Church be a church who does not roll our eyes and cast aside those who fail or those who are oppressed, but may we lay down our lives that the gomers of the world may know the goodness and the mercy of Jesus.
May our number grow, those of us who sing. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. He took my sins and my sorrow and he made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Amen. Let's sing to him.